Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. talking about intimacy. So Lisa, let's start out by answering the question, what is intimacy? I think when I'm talking about intimacy, I'm talking about the kind of closeness that creates comfort and feelings of trust and friendship. Um, And I'm talking about it both as something that people cultivate privately, but that also has a kind of public dimension. So I'm talking about the private gestures that create interpersonal closeness, and I'm also talking about sort of institutions of intimacy that that we set up to honor the kinds of arrangements we've made in our emotional lives. Right. I, I think intimacy can be connecting with a singular person, um, but it also could be understanding other people and yourself in relation to them, like moving beyond your own personal preoccupations um, and being aware of other people. So it's a it's a connection um, with either a singular person or like you feeling connected. other people in general yeah I mean I think that for me intimacy is is part of a narrative that we tell ourselves and others about our relatedness to people in our lives so I think that there is a narrative quality a storytelling quality almost even it's generally linear you know progression of feelings that move from point A to point B and that span a certain period of time. So I think people talk about intimacy as part of their life story, but in the daily practice of intimacy, it happens in really subtle gestures and sparse communication. And it also happens in really profound connections between people and bodies, I think. What do you think about that? I think I think that's right. I think um, intimacy requires a certain authenticity, like it's not a scripted type of communication or storytelling. It's like uh, authentic moments and being present and being aware of other people and letting things happen that mm-hmm. you know aren't exactly on the cue. That's right. That's what I wanted to talk about. That's you know when we decided to start with this episode. I'm really interested in how intimacy can overcome the like everyday disruptions of closeness. You know, what happens when romance or friendship or family run up against neglect or violence or money problems or exhaustion, <laughs> you know? Like how does the culture move through those moments? How do people move through those moments? How do they overcome them? And in my mind, it's intimacy that helps turn the unexpected into the delightful and it's intimacy that helps us create a shape for how to 
judge the moments of instability next to the moments of closeness. I mean, you know, the thing about intimacy is that when people get into close relation with one another, especially if they're romantically involved or sometimes if they're relationships between parental figures and children, I think it's really often um, the case that people are astounded by the fact that we can't all be collapsed into one singular perspective. I think that there are a lot of people who want to live vicariously through their children, and I think there are a lot of partners who live vicariously through their spouses. And I think that intimacy is where you learn a whole set of skills to negotiate the fact that the two, two humans are never going to actually be one, that fundamentally distinct differences in consciousness will always exist. And intimacy is the place where you, you know, create bridges across those consciousness um, planes. And they're also, and intimacy is also how you come to terms with the singularity and aloneness of being human. I feel like we're intimacy rock stars. I connect with people a lot. I think, you know, I feel like yeah, you do. I, but I don't. I don't exactly know how to articulate what it is. If it's like that I feel comfortable with myself, nothing's off limits in what I talk about. I don't know what it is. I think for sure confidence plays a big role in it. I feel like I feel really comfortable with who I am and I kind of have this perspective about, you know, if someone else doesn't like me or what I have to say, they don't have to keep talking to me and they don't have to like me. And that's fine, that doesn't change anything about who I am. It's about not needing to be liked and that can be problematic too, but you can't be intimate if you're so inside your own head. In some ways it's dishonest if you're acting in a way that you think someone else wants you to act so that you'll be likable to them. That's why I hate linen. I don't want to lean in. I want to be what somebody else fantasizes that I am. And leaning seems all about accommodating fantasies that have nothing to do with the self. Yeah, absolutely. When I worked at Walmart, I could see that women felt this pressure to do things for the company. Yes. And, um, I mean, I definitely talked to women who said that their job was their life and that um, they openly admitted to being miserable about it. But there's so much pressure to lean in and not be yourself, to do stuff for the company, not for yourself, or to do stuff for yourself in service to the company that, that in turn will serve you to, and get you ahead. But that to me is super counterproductive and often like makes people miserable. So I guess we can backtrack and say, how do you practice intimacy? I feel like I am like the most intimate person that I know. I feel like that is like my super superhero power. <laughs> I think that's what draws people to you a lot. I do too. People definitely feel drawn to you. And I, I mean, I felt drawn to you the first time we spoke and in class, even the way you, you really open up, I think as a listener, engage when someone's talking to you, but also you respond to what they said and you were actively listening and you respond to what they said so well. You heard everything and you know what I was saying and the way you react to that is also great. Like 
and it's a vibe. You like vibe off what people said, and I you're really good at getting on someone's level, picking up how someone communicates, and getting on that level with them. That was actually the first thing I said about you. We met at a bar, I think, one night. I saw you switch levels with different people. When you were talking to me, there was a certain cadence to how you talked and what you said, the content. And then I saw you switch and get on someone else's level who interacts in a very different way than me. And I think that's super communication, but also requires a certain level of intimacy, like at least in paying attention and being mm. outside of yourself, self-aware, but also engaged in your environment, not just in what you want. I feel like I'm hyper-present. Yeah, that's exactly I it. I feel like I'm hyper-present and all of my senses are engaged in any in almost every single encounter that I have, from the most mundane. Hmm. Everybody's always like, people give you free stuff. And I'm like, because I'm talking to them. I'm actually present and... You know, I feel like a lot of people reward that attentiveness with all kinds mm -hmm. of things, from intimacy to baked goods. I mean, I think there's yeah. like a wide range. Oh, for sure. Of um, responses to that, but I do code switch really well, and I listen well, and I'm actively curious too. I mean, I have an insatiable curiosity about people. And what they think about a whole variety of topics that I'm interested in engaging. And I also am not, I'm unwilling to shut people out of conversations even if I know they're coming from a place that I don't agree with. So I, I talk to lots of people that I fundamentally disagree with on mm. lots of levels. And I'm still trying to connect with them as people because I think that there's real value in that. Especially if you're trying to talk across difficult political topics, I think a lot of that can be ameliorated with better intimacy. Yeah. I mean, you have to meet people where they're at. You have to speak in a language that they actually know how to hear. And especially since I'm an academic, I have a lot of different tools at my disposal to communicate the things that I want to share with people. But you have to match that strategy with what they can actually hear. So, I mean, I also spend lots of times, time with people that are not like me at all as a way of learning how to speak to different kinds of people. And I, don't, I just don't think that people are very invested in speaking outside of their comfort zone. For me, I, I'm really interested in radical honesty about what I think and how I feel and mm -hmm. what I want. And I'm also heavily invested in being uncomfortable and being okay, reveling even, in right. spaces where, you know, it's not necessarily the most comfortable space for me. And part of that's privilege because I'm white and I'm able to do that. And part of it's class privilege because I'm educated. But, I mean, since I was a little girl, I've wanted to push myself into spaces that I wasn't necessarily equipped for or welcome in as a way of bridging social gaps that exist between people. So I think I've actually been this way since I was very, very young, like yeah. driven towards this kind of communication style. That takes a certain level of risk, though. You definitely have to oh, yeah. not give a fuck. No, I'm totally not <laughs> risk averse. I'm I so, high risk, high yield. And you definitely, yeah, I mean, you, you know, a lot of people are, I mean, might be alienated or feel like threatened, you know, if by how comfortable you are with discomfort because that's, first of all, super rare. 
I think that's true for me, too. I yes. think I am the kind of person that's like, if you aren't interested, if you don't like me, you know, you can just walk away or I can walk away, too. And the world will keep spinning, and I'll probably be fine. But that's why we get along, is because you can also <laughs> inhabit these liminal in-between spaces, between comfort and to- total comfort and total discomfort. You can inhabit those spaces between comfort and discomfort in a way that I find super refreshing. Like, I also do that. I'm happy to be right in the weird spot mm-hmm. where interesting things happen in conversation. And I just don't think that... Just like we were talking about earlier, I just think that people want scripts, and once they get off script, they they don't know what to do or what to say. Where I think you and I just write our own screenplay every day when we get <laughs> I up. Think that's true. You I know, mean, discomfort is where the growth happens. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, I people talk a lot about how you know, no pain, no game for exercise, and people talk about it, you know, in their career. Like you're never going to get far if you don't push yourself at work or take on projects that maybe you might be uncomfortable doing but no one ever really talks about it in terms of like actually interacting with Mm -hmm. people and like being uncomfortable in a social situation or you know meeting someone new and having that anxiety and like trying to figure out who they are but accepting the fact that it's an uncomfortable situation and there's nothing really on the line in most cases because there's so many other people who you can interact with. Well, and all it doesn't relationships all have to end. Work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, relationships can be bad when they get too comfortable. I mean, I feel two ways about that. I think you're right that people are motivated by comfort, and that works against intimacy. But I also sort of feel like intimacy is a thing that can't be disciplined and that must be, that must be a result of discipline. So I feel like in one way, intimacy can't be disciplined because it's sort of like the genie's out of the bottle. Like Mm -hmm. once you achieve a level of intimacy, you should be able to get there again and build on that. But on the other hand, I feel like intimacy exists when people make intentional decisions to cultivate closeness through honesty and openness and creative communication and play and caring and mutuality and those are things that the culture habituates us away from that really take discipline i mean we're surrounded by people who do not have the discipline to even identify their needs or their desires let alone enact them and and bring them to fruition and so i like how you're talking about this idea about work and labor Mm -hmm. Because I feel like, for me, intimacy has become fairly effortless because I've been disciplined at it for so long. Mm. But I feel like to other people, it seems effortless and they can't see all the work that's gone in. I have to put in work to be intimate. Like, I have to turn on. I tell people that working as a bartender is really exhausting because it's almost half of the job is talking to people. Psychological counseling, that's what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. and so I have to be on connecting with people and listening to them and responding. I mean, all while I'm doing other things like cleaning and making drinks. And I definitely have to put myself in that position um, and in that mindset. And that's pretty difficult for me to do, which I think probably limits the amount of work I can do once intimacy is achieved. So it's definitely a thing that a muscle that I, you know, have to exercise. exercise. And being a bartender, I think has made me a 
more intimate person. It's given me like practice. I'm way better at talking to strangers and getting to a point of intimacy relatively quickly. And I, I see people really surprised by that. Like I've had some people recently that I just met and had a couple of hours of conversation and they were like, I feel like we're really connecting. I was like, yeah, we are. And they seem really surprised by it. And I think being on and available and out of your own head and willing to engage with a situation is actually difficult. It's difficult to find people like that. I have conversations with people a lot, I think, who aren't willing to ask other people questions and don't really look at you and want to communicate. They just want to talk about themselves and that that's great. And I'm, that's part of being open, but it takes like an engaging with what the other person is trying to say and what they want to know about you and what you want to know about them. And it's an exchange and not a one-sided conversation. And that's, I think, what people are used to. Well, you know, I, I find myself talking all the time about men who are desperate for intimacy and, and don't have the skills to achieve it. But in the trajectory of their career, they take up a lot of social space and I just find myself saying all the time, like, stop using so many man words. Like, do you ever let anybody else talk? And are you listening? Where are the other, there are other people here at the table who have things to say, and you're just filling all the air with your man words. And I just find that, I mean, that's a defense mechanism. So those people I'm actually very interested in sort of pulling away the veil from. It's like, what are you hiding under there? What's, you know, what's right. the soft center like what is what are you so terrified of you know and I wish more people would listen as a strategy of intimacy because I think that's probably the best place to start when I think about practicing intimacy being a better listener I think is critical yeah that's absolutely I think what is the core of why what bartending has taught me a little bit and why I've been so much better at connecting with strangers is definitely my listening skills have improved <laughs> And that's, it's really nice. And it's really nice how much you can learn, you know, and how far you can go in a conversation. If you like, just take a second and figure out, you know, what the other person wants. But I mean, you and I, I think also get along so well because we're very good at banter. <laughs> and, and banter, I think, is like a canary in the coal mine, right? Like right. if the banter is going poorly, there there's an inability to be intimate. And I think you and I have very high thresholds for the kind of play, you know, that right. we want to engage in. And I think that that, that, that kind of play, mm. that banter, actually demands an incredible amount of familiarity with boundaries and codes and humor and mm. linguistic forms, yeah. you know, and and a willingness to be wrong and to fail when you don't land a joke well. Of I mean, course, yeah. I think that banter is a place where you can tell who is really good at intimacy and who's not. It's a very good litmus right. test. Any Anyone probably has the potential to be intimate, but it's really difficult in some cases. There are people who are just totally on a different plane in what they think and care about and what they want to communicate. And in some cases, it can be a waste of time to like try and become intimate with those people. It I, takes so much energy. I agree. I, Although I think, you know, I talk to so many people. I talk constantly. I talk for a living as a professor and as a consultant and as a speaker. And 
I find it's a very small number of people, like minuscule, that I can't connect with. And I don't know if that's me as an individual, like it's just something about my personality or the skill set that I've honed. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's a very, very, very small number of people for me. And now there are people that I ch ch would choose not to connect with. Mm -hmm. But in terms of can I, is, it, is, a po is there a possibility here? It's almost always a yes. And that's why I think the intimacy is so radical, especially from a political perspective, because I think almost everybody I have the ability to connect to in a way that would create closeness that would be able to overcome some kinds of divides right. between us, which is why I see it as a radical political act to actually practice intimacy on a regular ba basis, even if it's the mo most mm -hmm. mundane form to the most profound, transcendent mm -hmm. kind. In my mind, that's a tool for building stronger, healthier communities. Oh, absolutely. And I definitely believe that I can be intimate with people. Um, even if you don't like them. Yeah, even yeah. yeah, and even if I don't think there's a place for them in my life or my social structure mm -hmm. or even as someone who I would interact even on the most like mundane of levels. So I think mostly we've been talking about being available for intimacy, but not really like what it actually means to be intimate with someone. We've talked about, you know, having a conversation and being engaged. But what does it take between two people? Like, how do you know that you're being intimate with someone? Well, I mean, I, th I just talked briefly about radical honesty, but um, I am pretty invested in if you ask me a question, I will give you the exact, you know, I'll give you the, the truth of the matter. And I think that in a culture where the desires are defined almost entirely through consumption, I think it's very difficult for people to actually pinpoint what they want at any given time. And I think lots of conversations that are intimate are about desires. So, you know, what do you want to be? What job do you want? What's your goal here? I mean, from even within the sphere of capital, from those kinds of questions about who am I and what do I want, to even sexual intimacy, I feel like those are all questions of desires. And I think for people to actually understand their desires, they have to spend time with themselves, thinking about who they are and what they want in ways that are removed from all of these prescripted, scripted roles that the culture gives as wife, mother, husband, son, mm -hmm. father, whatever. So I think that there's there has to be a real concentrated, disciplined effort at thinking about what it is that people desire. And those desires change over time. Of course, yeah. And I think, I think you're right about the scripts and how most people structure the way they talk about their desires through these narratives that have been created in like the consciousness of our culture. And that are super narrow. And they're, they, yeah, usually really narrow. I mean, you have to dig to find other types of scripts. And I mean, I struggle with that too. But I think intimacy requires structuring your desires by something else. Mm -hmm. And I feel like not a lot of people know how to do that, including me. And I know the kinds of things that I want to be in like a really abstract way, but I, it is really hard for me to separate that from a career and how much money I want to have and what kind of place I want to live and what kind of things I want to buy and what I want to do with my time. All of that is never far outside of my head when I'm thinking about my desires. And I think it's even worse for most people. I think they completely structure their desires by like... Material reality. Yeah. 
Like, mm-hmm. I need to get married. Stuff. I need it to have a monogamous partner who loves me. And I, I need to be loved in this very narrow way. And I need to make this much money and have this much status. And I think that's how people have been structuring their desires. And that's not a way to get at, like, who a person actually is and what they care about. And it's not a good way to empathize with other people because all of that's about you and not about like your place in the universe and like how you are as an actor in the world and so few people talk about like what they want to be as an actor in the world and like how they relate to other people and like usually when you ask someone a question about what they want to be or who they are it's what do I do you know what's my career and not I mean this is what I'm into and this is what I'm about and uh, my goal is about other people and connection and happiness which I don't think is related to any of those scripts at all I mean for me my goal is justice like that that's the thing that is different about me and part of it is because I'm a little bit older and I, I have I already built my career really but my entire orientation is towards justice how to teach people how to seek justice and how to scaffold their lives with other people that they care about so that they can achieve justice and how to build healthier, happier communities where people feel like they have access to the rights that they should be guaranteed. And so for me, connecting with people is part of justice work. It's about teaching people how to create justice in interpersonal ways and how to demand it in more political ways. And so I don't really think about material stuff so much, but part of that's privilege too because I'm relatively materially comfortable. You know, Mm -hmm. I've built my career already, but... But even since I've been this way since I was young, I've been oriented towards justice and and rooting out injustice where I can based on what relative power that I have in any situation. So for me, I think that that's that's a major thing that distinguishes me from Mm -hmm. most of my social peers, you know, is that I don't actually identify as an academic or as a professor. When I think about myself, I think about work that I do towards justice, but the rest of those labels that the culture puts on me about other roles that I have, you know, no matter how central or incidental they are in my life, are just not as important to me as doing Mm -hmm. justice work. And so I'm talking about it constantly. But you pretty much have to explain those things to people, like what you do to get them to even level with you sometimes. They'll be like, well, what do you do? What what is your job? That's a a thing you have to cross before you can... Some people will open up. Yeah, and I think as a professor, I have a a level of credibility, especially in the South, that changes the way that people listen to me and or want to engage with me. And I also think about provocative and engaging things. So I usually lead with that. The conversations that I'm involved Mm -hmm. in, even with total strangers, are generally provocations. Yeah. Because that's the kind of persona that I have in public, you know, is that I'm interested in cultivating moments that are provocations in the spaces that I occupy whether that's yeah. in a bar or whether that's on an airplane or you know I pretty I pretty much do that too but probably in a less confrontational way <laughs> <laughs> but also like a less academic way I get on provocational subjects really quickly in conversation that are more like sex and personal stories embarrassing things sharing a lot about myself very soon which can be surprising and I found myself doing that a lot recently, and that's just like a different way. Divulging, to, you mean? Yes, yeah. But it's because I probably don't have the resources to articulate what I'm about as well as you just did. 
but I can kind of get around that by telling stories about myself. And as a comedian, I do that too, you know, um, use pieces of my life to talk about myself. So, I mean, communicating stories in a way that communicates yourself um, is another way I think that intimacy happens for me and like getting that back to like someone else being like, oh, you know, here's how that relates to something that happened in my life. And maybe they don't share directly something very specific about themselves, but like in telling that story, you can like see what someone cares about and what they're trying to communicate to you and how they're trying to relate to you. That's totally useful data because I don't think that I share very much about myself, even though I'm doing massive intimacy work. I think the stories that I share about myself are almost entirely used as a way of demonstrating that I'm not just an academic egghead. Mm-hmm. Like here's right. this, other, this <laughs> giant life that I've lived. But I don't know. I don't know that I talk about myself. You communicate in the same yourself way. in small ways. I think you tell less stories about your day to day stuff, and I just as a comedian like have to draw from. Oh, that's like, your pool. We- of data. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. for sure. But also, you do have the skills to talk about actual ideas as a way to structure what you're about. I don't have the skills to do that or the resources really yet. And I mean, I'm reading constantly and getting closer to that, but you have the skills to talk about ideas, events and things like on the internet and in real life and in conversation. And the way you talk about those things just like totally demonstrates your personality, in my opinion. And that's just like a different way of getting at who you are. Because we, I mean, we have different approaches to it. Yeah, absolutely. Different, we do. different backgrounds, um, different like levels of knowledge about things. I mean, obviously, what I know the most about is weird things that have happened in my life, and <laughs> I wish I knew more about other things, and I could get totally critical about a certain thing. <laughs> <in my life. laughs> and when I when I know about something, I can totally do that, and that's also you know a way to communicate with someone those are the best conversations when you like talk about a concept and I it happens a lot with me in open relationships because people I'm pretty open about the fact that I'm in an open relationship and people are just naturally curious about that and a lot of people are considering it now because it's becoming more and more you know talked about and there's more resources about open relationships available and I think getting into that conversation and sharing my theories about why open relationships work and why I think they're the way to go. Talking about that has been really intimate with other people and they like totally open up again and like share, you know, their past experiences and why they think it's interesting. I mean, part of it is that we live in a culture, especially in the South and especially in Arkansas, that is actually legislating like medically inaccurate information about sex and sexuality and is so regressive. And so I feel like we're surrounded by people who are alienated from the culture through their labor, either through their consumption or production, or they're just cut out of the labor market. They're alienated from family life because it's not meeting their needs whatsoever as the culture has shifted. And they do not have the tools to really articulate or imagine new spaces for themselves or or their desires, and so I feel like I'm surrounded by alienated people who don't know how to be alive. And so for me, it's almost even like performing, you know, Mm -hmm. that aliveness and being seen being alive is a tremendous catalyst for intimacy. 
Because in the same way that people want to talk to you about open relationships, mm-hmm. since I'm a gender studies pr- professor, they want to talk to me about all of the gendery things. So I get drive-by gendered all the time on everything from like the most mundane, factual sex information to really complicated assessments of politics and culture and gender identity and, and strategies, political strategies in particular. And that is really, that's the thing that drives me. I mean, I feel like I'm out in public more frequently because I feel like there's more and more and more of a need for people to be able to talk openly about themselves and their lives and what they want for Mm -hmm. themselves. That's absolutely true, and I think you're an access point to information for a lot of people. Yes. And, I mean, you obviously direct them to other resources that they, like, couldn't find themselves. But that's definitely not their fault. No. Lack of education on, like, basic human... I mean, the whole conversation about who you are as a person, as we've discussed, is structured around these capitalist, consumerist notions, like what your labor, the way you make money is who you are. And, you know, no one knows how to talk about other things, you know, like how to talk about their gender. And I mean, there aren't those other conversations like you everyone talks about their lives in these scripts and like what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to do it and it's so hard to get out of that and you can be intimate in in a heteronormative um successful in a capitalist way but you can be you that won't structure the intimacy i feel like i'm curating for a lot of readers in Arkansas, particularly on social media, I feel like I'm curating a ton of resources for them to think about intimacy and other topics, mm-hmm. politics for sure, in new ways. And I, I feel like we need more curators of information that can help steer people towards ways to understand themselves in new ways. And I just don't know that a lot of academics in particular are trained to think of themselves as repositories of data that they can share that way or as guides. I sort of see myself as a guide, Mm -hmm. you know, like I'm guiding people through certain, especially as a professor, revelations about themselves just by giving them access to data. So that's definitely a space. That's a space for intimacy though. And that's great. And I like the idea of intimacy being a conduit for education, like a way for people to learn information. It is, though. Every professor who's worth anything in the classroom knows that intimacy is what creates the spark and the connection with the students that helps them get next Mm -hmm. level about how they feel about learning. Yeah, and I mean, I know for sure I retain way more information if it's communicated to me through conversation with someone I care about usually. Like if someone I don't care about is just telling me something, I don't engage with it as well. If I don't know the person, I don't engage with it as well. Like the things that I really retain and the ideas that I care about more are the things that I've picked up by having a conversation with someone and the things that they've communicated to me. I just remember, you know, the whole situation and how I cared about that person and cared about what they said. And I remember what they said. I just feel like politically we've come to a place in this country where people have been have been normed away from caring about others. And um, I that has to be rectified. Like the only path forward mm-hmm. is to care about other people the way that you care about yourself. And that is a really, I've, in my mind, probably the, the biggest 
barrier mm-hmm. to overcome a whole host of structural inequities that are pervasive in American culture. It has to be, we have got to retrain this generation and the ones that come after it to care about other people. And I, it just seems mm-hmm. so obvious to me. I mean, from and I, and I feel like it's also, this is a ubiquitous message. I mean, I'm not going to get super religious, but it's not like the New Testament isn't totally about that. You know? Yeah. So I'm just, I'm like, why has the caring for others part stopped? I feel like there's a conversation about caring about others and empathy gets brought up a lot in the workplace, like in HR, you know, in the HR kind of way. And compassion is spoken about and there's like a resurgence of interest in Buddhism and things like that. But I think a lot of times it's lip service, a way to feel better about yourself. Oh, yeah. And a way for a company to like make their employees feel like, they're not softer, that they're softer brand. Yeah. I mean, I know, um, in the corporation that I worked for Walmart, they do a lot of save money, live better. And that's just not, that's not the only like core mission that they relate to caring about other people like respect. I mean, they have like these core missions and most of them are about caring about other people. But I think a lot of times it is lip service and in practice, most of the people I saw there were pretty single-mindedly invested in their own future and their own advancement in the company. And, like, they cared about people, you know, in a way that was like, well, I have to move up in the company, you know. But I think actually caring about people is so difficult and having it be genuine. But it's, I mean, it takes so much energy. It really does. It's not just a thing you can say. I mean, you have to be empathetic, of course, and you can be empathetic and not intimate. And probably empathy is a precursor to intimacy in some way, but or a prerequisite. But I mean, part of this is just so class dependent too, because I feel like the people who are really terrible at empathy right now are in the position where they have, you know, most of the social power in the culture, and that that's really devastating. Is that the people who have the money and the people who have the power have totally lost their ability to connect with other people because all that does is exacerbate the rich poor gap and social violence and segregation and all of these horrible things Mm -hmm. that make intimacy totally impossible within communities or between communities. And that that's a travesty. In a first world country, in a country this wealthy, I mean, it's completely unacceptable. So in my mind, intimacy is is an ethical imperative. Like we yeah. have a, an ethical imperative to connect and to uh, overcome our narcissism and our fears and insecurities, um, especially as white people. I think white people have an imperative to overcome that and do better, given how many structural advantages and privileges right. that we have. I just think that there is an imperative there that can't be dislodged. Yeah, I get really frustrated a lot. Um, there's actually a poster I have here in this office that is from Adbusters, and on one side of the poster it says, dead, and it has a picture of someone coming home from work. It's a really close-up of their feet outside of, like, what's obviously a very nice car and a really nice briefcase. And in some ways you can imagine that they might have been coming from, like, a HR program from work about intimacy or empathy or diversity or happiness but they could have just as easily come from like an NRA meeting or something like that um and but the other side says uh alive and it shows um people living in pretty 
destitute situations, but they're like having a party and they're all talking. I think it's in the slums of Delhi, but everyone's like talking and they're eating together and they live in close proximity. So I kind of like that message that you can be dead, you know, and have all these successful. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> these like outward measures of success uh-huh. and you can, you know, be pretty destitute and, you know, be pretty poor and have intimacy in your life. I do think you can live in bad conditions and be intimate. I mean, I just, I just see so many people trapped, um, either through structural violence or structural poverty or through structures of white success that alienate them so fully that they, they just get trapped in lives that they, that they can't get out of. And, and those are structural things. They're not just individual choices that people make as individuals. Those are they're structures that are being mobilized to keep people insecure and consuming. And that cycle has got to be broken if anything's going to improve for anybody. Certainly for me, but also for all the people that I care about. So that's why I think, you know, that there's just this ethical imperative to strive to connect with other people as a fundamental obligation. One thing that, and this may be kind of diverging, but it's been fresh on both of our minds, I think, because of the gun legislation in Arkansas. One thing that always struck me as crazy is that I have had uh, several coworkers in corporate environments who talk about having guns a lot and needing guns to protect their families. Even though, I mean, all the evidence shows that even having a gun in the house is more dangerous than, I mean, you're more likely to shoot the gun at yourself or one of your family members than you are ever to shoot at a possible intruder. But the fact that people think there will be an intruder and that they need to protect themselves from other people and that that they have to do it with like extremely lethal force force. Um, and that they have to live in a place and lock their door every day and, um, you know, close the blinds because people might be looking and, and like, you know, they need their own private enclosed backyard and... They need their house to be a certain amount of distance from another house. Um, I mean, there's all of this conversation that I heard that was, to me, like fear of other people. But it's that hyper-insecurity. I mean, it's that is America's built on hyper-insecurity because we illicitly stole a bunch of land from people who are already living here. So in some ways, I feel like that insecurity is a fundamental part of what has become the American psyche. And then you have politicians mm-hmm. who use that kind of nativism and xenophobia and white supremacy to shake people to consume certain things. I mean, there are whole industries built off of selling insecure white people stuff that will make them feel more secure. And that's just a tragedy to me because that's that's totally a lack of intimacy that's driving their consumption and their feeling of being completely displaced and alienated Mm -hmm. in the culture that could be ameliorated with intimacy and they're choosing those things like those things and over other people you know yes um and they're choosing to like isolate themselves which is completely the wrong move and it's i think in service of comfort i mean insecurity i think the salve to that is comfort and establishing comfort for yourself and making things predictable and making feeling like you're in control and part of being intimate is like you let go of some of your control yes. and you allow other people to have some, some power. power. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So 
Yes, yes, yes. So I think I didn't quite articulate it in my head when I was hearing those conversations, but there's something like so fundamentally wrong about it to me. Like the ideal living situation for me is like a communal living situation. And yes, it's hard. And yes, you have to be vulnerable. And yes, sometimes people will hear you having sex. And yes, sometimes you have to wait for the shower, but you have to like live your life around other people to be a good person. And I, it blows my mind that the most powerful people in our society are those that are like pretty isolated from other people. And that's not, I mean, there are some exceptions to that rule, but in general, the people who call the shots in major companies and even like nonprofits and in politics for sure are just like totally separate from other people. And you have to live your life around other people. I mean, the problem is, is that when people willfully segregate themselves into gated communities and they build this surveillance culture around their own comfort, it makes it absolutely impossible to overcome that gulf, which only solidifies white supremacy and, you know, class control and segregation and things. So, I mean, I just think that that's reckless and socially destructive behavior and undermines the possibility of having healthy, happy communities, and I can't, I can't support it at all. It's anti-intimacy, radically anti-intimacy. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayette.